Hi, and welcome to another OSINT Curious interview this week. Uh, my name is Lawrence, and I am yeah this episode's host. And today I'm also joined by a special guest, uh, Jessica Davis. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Lauren. Uh, so before I start off with the first question, uh, I would like to introduce our special guest uh, because today we have a very, very interesting topic, uh, namely financing terrorism in the 21st century and also, of course, with an OSINT angle. And uh, yeah, let me introduce our special guest. So Jessica Davis, uh, she's an international expert on terrorism and illicit financing. And she's also the president and principal consultant uh, with Insight Threat Intelligence. Um, she's also the president of the Canadian Association for Security and Intelligence Studies. And most interestingly, we're going to also talk about her career, um, which maybe you can then also tell us a little bit uh, about more. But um, yeah, Jessica uh, began her career in intelligence analysis with the Canadian military, then transitioned to a policy role at Global Affairs Canada before becoming a team leader with Canada's financial intelligence unit, Quintrack. And in her last role in government, she was a senior strategic analyst at CSIS, responsible for threat financing and also managing the indicators of Mobilization to Violence project. So once again, uh, Jessica, thank you so much for being on this, uh, yeah, on this, uh, on this show. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thanks so much. No, absolutely. So we usually start off with uh, the same question, which is, Tell us a little bit about your career, because mm -hmm. most of our listeners, um, they are interested in OSINT and they want to, you know, work in this kind of professional environment, become an OSINT analyst, maybe. So tell us, how did everything start with you? And maybe also touch upon, you know, how and when you got into contact with OSINT. Yeah, so my career started, like you said in the intro, with the Canadian military. This is back in the late 1990s. So there wasn't really OSINT at the time. At the time, it was really all about your classified intelligence. And over the course of my career, which transitioned through some policy roles and then financial intelligence, and then finally with our security intelligence service, I started to see more and more open source intelligence and information being integrated into our analytic products to the point that at some point in time, probably within the last five or eight years, I would say that the majority of the information that I was using for my intelligence analysis was actually coming from open sources. Um, so it was a huge shift over the course of my 20 year career in Canadian intelligence. And one of the more interesting things I think about that shift is that you know, maybe in 2005, 2006, you could get only a small bit of that information in, in open media or open sources, and it would lag by three or four weeks, at least sometimes months at a time. So the information was becoming available, but it was taking a long time. But now I find that classified intelligence really only has a shelf life of a couple of days or hours for some of it uh, before it becomes either reconstructed, publicly available, sometimes it's get, it gets leaked. So there's um, a real shelf life or half-life for a lot of intelligence these days that I think is one of the more interesting sort of trends in intelligence analysis. So that's very interesting. And what do you think, because you said it was only started in 2005, 2006, when Austin became, became more and more important. What do you think was the underlying factor or driver for this? Yeah, it's, it's got to be to me sort of web 2.0 and social media technologies, because this allowed, you know, a lot of human intelligence collection to go online. So you're talking directly to sources through social media apps, through um, messaging apps, that kind of thing. And it's really 
changed um, even more over the last few years. Um, increased websites that have really good information, the decentralization of information. So um, there's a lot of different things that are happening, but I think it's really got to be that um, social media connection. And of course, that's also how subjects of investigation are communicating with each other as well. So it's not only that it's useful from an intelligence perspective in terms of collection, but it's also that you have to go to where your subjects are in order to collect that information. So before we start also talking about your new book, um, Illicit Money, Financing Terrorism in the 21st Century, let me just ask, um, can you walk us through the, the mechanisms behind uh, terrorism financing? How does it work? Yeah. Uh, this has been the subject of something that I've been working on for many, many years now. When we talk about terrorist financing, it's really common to hear the terms raising money or moving money as two of the mechanisms that are involved in financing. And those are certainly very important parts of financing. You know, a terrorist organization has to raise money. They do it through donations, uh, identity-based support networks, sometimes state sponsors, lots of criminal activity. And then they move that money into often to their zone of attack or zone of operations. But there's other things that are involved as well. So they have to also store that money, um, especially for terrorist organizations that are controlling territory or able to generate a profit. Um, they need to store that money. Often it's happening in cash. So when we see something like ISIL, who were taxing the population in their area of control quite extensively. A lot of that taxation was happening in cash. Their cash storage sites became a, an attractive target for counter-terrorist financing operations because you can actually literally blow up money. Um, there's also how terrorists use money, which is a really important piece of understanding sort of the overall financing. For organizations, it's pretty easy to think about how they use money. Obviously, it's going to be for to pay salaries, to provide subsistence to their members, to acquire weapons, safe houses, that kind of thing. It's really important, though, when we're talking about disrupting attacks or plots, to think about how that operational level financing is happening. So what kind of equipment are they trying to acquire? How are they going, going about doing it? And this is another place where that OSINT piece comes in, is that a lot of weapons acquisition or component and device acquisition is now happening in online marketplaces or um, you know, through eBay, through Amazon, um, sometimes through the dark net, but it's actually a lot happening just on your usual websites. Um, so that's sort of the use the use of money. That's one of the mechanisms. And then there's a few others. How they manage their money as well is very important to understand. So probably most people will will intuitively know that when an organization is has a lot of money or is, has a surplus of funds or is trying to reconstruct the activities of a state, they're going to need to manage their money. So the Taliban obviously has to manage whatever they're able to generate in terms of revenue in Afghanistan. Um, Hezbollah has a lot of management structures around their money. This also happens, though, at the operational level. So an attack or plot also has to be financially managed. Most of the time that's going to fall to one or two people within the group, um, but it's generally like a person who's in charge of figuring out how much the attack is going to cost. Do they have the financial resources in place to realize their objectives? Oftentimes they don't. They have to downscale their attack plans because they've run into these logistical or financial hurdles. 
So there's a management piece of it as well. And then the last one that I think is also so interesting is how terrorists obscure the source and destination of their funds. So what kind of financial tradecraft do they use? Uh, and this is where we can get into some really interesting topics like cryptocurrency, um, the use of social media platforms to facilitate payments, um, but there's a lot of cash that gets used in terms of hiding source and destination of funds because cash is a financial intelligence black hole. It's really difficult to trace. It's very movable. It is heavy, but if you're talking about small amounts of money, you're going to have a really hard time figuring out who had it, who who got it at the end. So those are the sort of the overall mechanism. So it's how terrorists raise, use, move, store, manage, and obscure their funds is sort of the big picture um, framework for understanding financing. So this is, um, I mean, there are many, many points, and I've got <laughs> so many questions. Uh, but the overall goal is to, you know, to disrupt uh, an organization's ability of, you know, getting the funds um, necessary to acquire new weapons, maybe, or carrying out eventually attacks, but also disrupting the organization as a whole. So having looked at or having described all of these different mechanisms, which ones are the one to go for if you want to effectively uh, counter terrorist financing. So, in your in your uh, yeah in your experience, yeah, depending on your your counterterrorism strategy is going to depend a lot on the area of operation that we're talking about. So, if we're talking about a terrorist group that controls territory, you know, a lot of that's going to be your traditional boots on the ground counterterrorism operations. So, let's take Somalia for example. Al Shabaab controls some territory in Somalia to effectively counter their financing, which is largely taxation based. You need to reduce the amount of territory that they control. So, you need to really constrict the amount that they're able to generate that way. So, one of the main areas is that. Um, depending on how they're managing their funds though you can start to get a little bit more creative in terms of targeting some of those structures so a lot of terrorist organizations will make investments outside of where they're actually operating and for the long term so you know isil made investments in iraq and syria but also made some investments in real estate car dealerships in turkey so you can start to sort of um, think about targeting those things as well so that could be through for the most part, that's not going to be through kinetic means like the cash storage strikes, but it could be through other legal mechanisms. So whether or not they've paid their taxes, uh, whether or not the individual who actually controls the property can be tied to terrorist activity or other criminal activity. So you can sort of start to get at it in a bunch of different ways. So your counter-terrorist financing strategy depends on the area of operation for the group. Yeah. And then when we talk about it, at the operational level, so those attacks and those plots, then you need to start thinking about the economy and the financial system where those attacks and plots can take place to identify potential financing mechanisms. So for instance, if we're talking about um, a potential terrorist attack in a country that doesn't use cryptocurrency, you're not gonna include open source cryptocurrency in your counter-terrorist financing plan or strategy. But if you're talking about a country that is really um, has a high level of internet use where it's much more likely that people would be pass would have some sort of familiarity with cryptocurrency, then you're going to want to include that in your strategy and consider it as how a terrorist may move or hide their funds. So it's really dependent and it really needs to be tailored for the specifics of the environment and the specifics of the group. So that was very interesting, the last point, and would have been also my next question. So 
how, uh, how and when would OSINT come into play? And then you just explain it, uh, talking about the need to be certain, uh, you know, parameters or circumstances, um, such as the high level of uh, internet usage, which is very important because, yeah, it makes sense because if you if you don't have a good internet penetration and but you want to acquire some money, it's going to be difficult um, to ask them for money. But you also touched upon it earlier, and you mentioned maybe we can talk about this some examples of, you know, how or when OSINT uh, can be produced from, um, you know, through this monitoring by finding these terrorist organizations um, trying to buy, uh, purchase uh, mm -hmm. some uh, devices. Um, for some yeah terrorist activities or mm -hmm. yeah when i think about osint in the financing space it's changed so much over the last um five or six years really since bitcoin sort of came onto the scene so i'd say like 2013 2014 which is when i really started to to notice it and pick up on it in terms of an extremist use of bitcoin um my first reaction to bitcoin has always been of just pure delight like you, this this is a mechanism that makes all financial transactions publicly visible. This is the kind of information that requires a warrant in most jurisdictions. So like you have to have a really high level of proof in order to convince courts to give you that level of financial detail from like a bank or something. And people were just actively using it online to conduct transactions. And it was like this intelligence goldmine. I was astonished and delighted. And then of course we start to see things like mixers and sort of um, other other financial trade craft that hides the, the source and destination of the fund. I would say that it doesn't hide it entirely. It does make it a lot more difficult and really much more time consuming to tr trace that flow of funds to the point that I think we're almost at the point where it's, if, if extremists know what they're doing, yeah we need other mechanisms to get at that information because it becomes so time consuming and without, and a lot of the tools are automated and are pretty good at it, but it's still like, you still kind of have to verify it individually, especially if we're talking about an evidentiary standard. So for going, going before court. So the Bitcoin piece was, was really amazing for a long time. It's less amazing now. There's lots of other sources of financial intelligence. So uh, available OSINT wise as well, domain registration information, I think, is great. Um, often the person who's registered the domain is also paying for its upkeep. So that's sort of like a place to start in terms of um, targeting terrorist websites and propaganda. Um, so there's been a number of really great operations that have sort of used that information. And I think that there's, we might see some interesting stuff with the Epic data leaks too, um, that were that were just leaked. I think it was this week or last week. Um, so those are other places. And then, of course, crowdfunding websites where people will actively leave their names about how they're donating money, sometimes less so. But a lot of people will sort of write down full name, full information, donation amount in terms of how much they've donated. So there's lots of financial intelligence that's now available open source that wasn't available five or six years ago that I find absolutely incredible because my work was really in the domain of you have a warrant you have reasonable grounds to believe that somebody's involved in terrorist activity. Okay, now you can see the financial information. But now that's really flipped. You can really start building the financial piece from the get-go, which is kind of wild. I've also seen, and it's a, a very interesting point, uh, the Bitcoins, and I'm still sometimes amazed that uh, people think that by using Bitcoins, they're kind of like have this privacy and you can't see it. But actually, when you uh, try to understand how it actually works, and as you said, it's a public ledger, so mm -hmm. all the transactions are visible. 
And uh, yes, of course, uh, there were these, um, you know, new um, these mixes that make it more difficult to find the transactions, but it's still possible. And I've seen also work in this area, and I've done a little bit in this area as well, um, trying to identify someone with a Bitcoin address. And it's always interesting when they have some sort of social media account, and underneath the name it says the Bitcoin address, but you found this address also in a, in a transaction. Uh, supporting uh, yeah a terrorist organization that's uh, very interesting. yeah um, i'll just flag to um, bellingcat has a really great intro to cryptocurrency tracking on their website it's it's a great place to get started so if people are interested in doing that and sort of getting into it it's a, i don't know that there's anything better it's really basic get you started and dig into the dig into the ledger that's cool um, and also for our listeners, I forgot to mention it, but uh, Jessica, she's also on Twitter. So definitely make sure to follow her. Her handle is at Jess Marin Davis. So it's all together J E S M A R I N D A V I S. Cool. Um, and what do you, so my next question would be about what are the, the latest trends? I mean, we can stick a little bit to cryptocurrencies. We talked about Bitcoin, and you also kind of like hinted towards some, some new things there. Um, has it become more challenging or is it still Bitcoin? I think the biggest trends right now in the terrorist financing space are, well, there's a couple of different things. So first of all, the use of technology by terrorist actors is by far one of the um, most important trends. It's a little bit of a mixed bag though, sort of as I was alluding to. So on one hand, it can complicate investigations because there's so many different types of technologies, financial technologies, transfer companies, uh, cryptocurrencies that can be used. That can make it like to really do a lot of in-depth investigations. If if you're up against a really good adversary, you're going to have to become an expert in an awful lot of things. On the other hand, I would say the technology creates this paper trail that makes investigations much easier. So there is going to be this data that exists often in largely structured format that makes analysis at scale much more likely to happen, much more likely to be useful. So there's a couple of different trends there, um, but like the rest of society, terrorists and extremists are adopting more and more technology. So this is exactly what we're seeing in the terrorism space. The use of online marketplaces, crowdfunding, financial technology companies, cryptocurrency, all of these things are becoming much more mainstream uh, with us and with the extremists. So that's one of them. The other piece is this push for greater transparency in terms of ownership structures of companies. Um, and I think that this is going to shed a fair bit more light on that storage and management piece of terrorist financing that I talked about. When I was writing my book, Illicit Money, I found that there wasn't all that much information about how terrorists store and manage their funds. I had to really sort of like dig up the examples. And part of that I think is because the ownership structures of so many companies have been hidden for so long, but now there's a move to make beneficial ownership publicly available. So again, that OSINT piece is becoming more, more available. Um, a lot of countries already have some corporate information available, um, but there's, there's a greater push to make that ultimate beneficial owner clearer. Um, and I think that's going to be an important piece in terms of exposing some of the higher level terrorist financing schemes that I think have maybe escaped public uh, knowledge to date. That's very that's very interesting. So the, the transparency point that mm -hmm. it will be because uh, for for yeah some of our listeners who also work in this area or looking at company structures, this can be very very complicated and complex. 
Um, so I guess in the in the terrorism financing world, this is obviously extremely challenging, and not just two or three clicks on free publicly available sites. I guess mm -hmm. a bit more challenging. So it's interesting. Yeah, and you know the ownership ownership structures are difficult too because. A lot of the time, OSINT isn't going to tell us the full picture in terms of the connections to a terrorist organization. Terrorists are often using third parties, proxies to to acquire those assets. So you really need to have that lead information. But there's still a fair bit if you have that sort of that name or that company that you can potentially uncover in the open open in open sources. Yeah. Oh, that's absolutely amazing. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Cool. Um, now let's talk about your your new book. So, I mean, we touched upon um, elements of it, I guess. But uh, your new book for and for our listeners, it's uh, it's called "Illicit Money: Financing Terrorism in the 21st Century." So, what is your book about in a nutshell? My book is really an effort to bring together, first of all, all of the existing knowledge on terrorist financing that we have to date. There's actually quite a lot out there. Um, it's a little bit scattered, though. It's sort of in pieces of um, you know, studies on a specific group or a specific attack. And I tried to pull it all together. So I looked at 50 different terrorist organizations over time and basically highlighted all of their financing mechanisms and the specific ways that they go about financing their activities. So categorized everything into how they raise, use, move, store, manage, and obscure their funds. And then I did the same thing for um, terrorist attacks and plots. And I looked specifically at both completed attacks, so those that were successful and those that were disrupted to sort of see if there were much in the way of differences in terms of the financing angle. Um, and I really wanted to do that to sort of understand what kind of similarities and differences exist between organizational level financing, so for groups, and operational level financing. And the thing that I found is two things really. The first is that there's a lot of similarities between how organizations and operations are financed, but there's a difference in terms of the scope and scale. So a terrorist organization, we're talking about often hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in terms of revenues. Profits are a different thing though, so we can talk about that in a minute. Um, for terrorist attacks, we're mostly looking at things that are $10,000 or less, often hundreds of dollars in terms of attacks. So how we go about detecting that is really different. So this has some implications for counter-terrorist financing legislation and practices. I would argue that our counter-terrorism financing regime internationally has been set up around countering organizations. I think it's less useful at the operational level. I think we're seeing some progress there with the enhanced use of financial intelligence for detecting terrorist plots, but I'm not entirely convinced that the structures are equally applicable for organizational and operational financing. So broad strokes, that's what the book is about, creating that overarching framework for understanding financing mechanisms and then creating very clear sources of information for operational and organizational financing as, as that framework or that base from which we can really go forward and expand our knowledge on terrorist financing. Wow. So when you talk about, and my first question would be, how long did it take uh, take you to, to write it? Because it's a lot of work uh, analyzing all these and collecting the data, especially. Yeah, so this <laughs> took me so long. It took 
I think so. I started in 2017 and it's now 2021. So it took me a good four years of writing. Um, I was very lucky because my employer at the time, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, had already allowed me to publish my first book, which is Women in Modern Terrorism. It's very unusual um, for a security service to allow an employee to publish a book. They were really wonderful about it. I had to be very careful, obviously, to not include any classified information in my books. They gave me permission to start working on illicit money while I was still working there. Um, so that's now a number of years, three, three or four years ago. And then I finished it up after I left. Um, but it took years of work. It went through several rounds of peer review, which is, I'm really grateful to my publisher for doing that because it means that the book is very academically rigorous while also hopefully still being quite useful to practitioners. And there's a lot that didn't even make it into the book. So this is where my newsletter comes into play. So I've got, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages of research that cannot be in the book because it's already super long. Trust me, it's, it's too long. Um, so now I'm trying to start to publish that as part of my newsletter, uh, Inside Intelligence, to, to first of all, let it see the light of day and to help keep the dialogue going about terrorist financing. Wow, uh, that's incredible. So um, much work. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is, uh, but it's also very, very important work. So thanks again for being on uh, yeah, the show today to talk about it. And to our listeners, um, so in case you can't see what we are just um, yeah, seeing, uh, you can find her intelligence newsletter it's insightinter.substack.com. So this is where you can sign up. You just talked about the differences between the financing of, um, you know, organization versus operational level. And I just wanted to quickly ask something for clarification. So when you talk about operational level, uh, are you talking about individuals uh, or like the individual level uh, versus then, let's say, the big organization or the big terrorist groups? Yeah, I'm mostly talking about individuals and cells because one of the things that I found very odd in in my research is how rarely a terrorist organization will actually fund a terrorist attack itself. Mm -hmm. Most of the time cells and lone actors, so individuals, will have to fund their their attack themselves. So there's very it you know finding that footprint of organizational funding of an attack is pretty rare. You know it happens in a couple of high profile cases. It usually signals that the attack will be a higher complexity, often higher casualty attack. Um, but, you know, so much today in terms of our, the attacks that we see are from two or three individuals or an ind a lone actor, lone individual who conduct a vehicle ramming attack or a stabbing attack or even a shooting attack. Um, and just because you have, or if you don't have that organizational financing, you can still end up with a really high level or a high complex, higher complexity, and certainly a high casualty attack. You know, I look at, I think about the San Bernardino attack that killed a number of people. It was just really two individuals self-financed their attack, inspired by a terrorist organization, um, but they still did an awful lot of damage. What I find very interesting when it comes to terror attacks is, is the shift that you also talked about, especially during these ISIS terror attacks in across Europe and mm -hmm. elsewhere, where this, there was the shift from these, um, you know, highly sophisticated um, operations that took probably a long time to, you know, to, to come up with, uh, to these low cost operations where they just take a knife and then go on the street and then people will talk about it. And that was also the, the, the role of the media, which I found also very interesting. But at the end of the day, it's about spreading fear and, and terror and that we achieved as well without a lot of money. Uh, so that's interesting to hear. Yeah. 
Yeah. And there's a number of things that are are so interesting about those lone actor attacks. I think the first one is sort of, I, I alluded it to it earlier in the interview, but most of the terrorists that I've studied over time start out aspiring to a high level, high complexity attack. They want to have a bombing attack. They want to have an improvised explosive device. They want to shoot a bunch of people. But over time, they realize that this is going to be complex logistically. It's going to require a lot more money than they have. And it's going to expose them to a lot more law enforcement scrutiny. So they downscale their attack planning over time to something that's much more um, achievable for them. And so this is where I think we start to see those lone actor or low complexity attacks. Um, the other question, though, that's on my mind, and this is something that I'm working on now for, for my PhD, which is a whole other project, is the question of how... How do our counter-terrorist financing policies and practices affect terrorist attacks? And my hypothesis is that how we've gone about countering the financing of terrorism may be one of the reasons we've seen this downscaling and this shift to lone actor attacks. Because you know it's very difficult, obviously, to move money internationally if you're a terrorist organization. You have to be really careful. There are lots of rules and regulations in place about the dollar amounts, and you're exposing yourself to scrutiny. And even as a lone actor or a small cell, buying fertilizer, for instance, requires often a cover story. We saw that in Canada in the Toronto 18 plot. The, the attackers wanted to build an improvised explosive device, so they created a whole um, legend, really, about them being student farmers to give a, give a credible reason for buying the fertilizers. And there's a whole piece that's involved in that. And so I, my hypothesis at this point is that those are ex exploiting of financial intelligence, our structures around countering terrorist financing may have been one of the factors, maybe even the factor that led to these small scale attacks, but I haven't proven it yet. So you have to stay tuned for that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean that makes absolutely sense what you just described the the, the policies that you also described were geared towards you no know, counter terrorist financing um, especially on at the organizational level and they were seem to be successful um, maybe disruptive and that's why this shift to these it makes it makes sense to me um, that's very interesting I'd love to read more about it uh, once you have published some articles on this topic yeah. in uh, another four also, years yeah. <laughs> So I've got two questions for you. Mm -hmm. uh, the, yeah, let's start off with the, the the first one, which is how would how uh, what are the challenges with disrupting these attacks from a you know financing perspective? I mean, mm -hmm. if we talk about low cost, it's going to be difficult. But are there any angles um, mm -hmm. generally to counter these types of attacks? Um, and also on the financial level, is there anything that can be done? Mm. Yeah, I would say that. Obviously, if we're talking about um, a more sophisticated or higher complexity attack, there are more angles financially to disrupt. So, you know, it's easier to potentially detect some of the some of the purchases, for instance, or maybe um, the donations or the inflow of funds into the the larger scale attack. Because it's going to be more. There's going to be more opportunities there. When we talk about a lone actor attack or a small cell attack that's really low complexity that becomes much more difficult. So some of the things that we're looking at there are um, changes in behavior, really. So this is sort of the indicators piece that I think is really important. And it's, it's very common in the financial community to talk about uh, indicators and changes in financial behavior. The, the real challenge here, though, frankly, is that terrorist financing, 
the, the financial activity there is not a big data problem. You don't have big data that you can use to develop good rules and good algorithms to detect those changes. It's a bespoke data problem. So it's really about having tailored information and tailored intelligence to detect those changes in behavior. So concretely for banks or financial ent entities that are trying to do this, it's really about getting good lead intelligence from law enforcement or security services about who they're looking at. Or in some cases, geographic targeting orders looking at specific regions can be useful as well because it narrows down the number of financial transactions that you need to look for but yeah it's 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 not an easy solution it's not an easy problem you know we just had a case here in canada a couple of individuals who are definitely radicalized and have been released from prison are now on peace bonds we have no idea like there's no way to know if they're going to try to conduct an attack they may make a purchase that's suggestive of a terrorist attack. So, you know, if they buy something like a knife, a particular knife, or in Canada, weapons are more restricted. So that would that would be a very clear indicator. Um, but even then, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's what they're going to do. So it starts to become a very difficult and investigatively intensive process. So these low complexity attacks are, are difficult uh, to counter. That's for sure. And you also touched upon. Another big challenge, I think, for many um, policymakers and practitioners and researchers, namely to how can uh, one identify an individual online um, using, let's talk about the OSINT world, um, mm -hmm. to identify individuals based on certain markers that this person is firstly becoming uh, radicalized, maybe even violently radicalized, mm -hmm. or, and then also eventually carrying out an attack. So this is extremely difficult. And I've seen also some very interesting work in this area, trying to look at past cases and then trying to infer from past online behavior how these things change, it's, but it's extremely, extremely difficult. Yeah, and I think the piece that's really tough in the OSINT space is that people lie on the internet a lot. So like I have seen a number of cases where people will say that they're doing something say that they're mobilizing to conduct a terrorist attack. But when you look at the actual evidence of what they're doing, they're not doing any of that. Um, so they're lying and they're saying, oh, I went out and bought this knife today, or I went out and stole $500 so I could get these this explosive device component. And they just didn't do it, but they're, they're very willing to say that on the internet, which muddies the water a little bit. And this is why you need to be looking, we need to be looking for concrete action and not just statements of action. Yeah, that's a very, very good point, and one of the common challenges verification in OSINT. Um, and I've I've had also uh, cases. That's why I don't like to put out anything on Twitter. Um, so if I sometimes I do it also kind of like for fun, uh, mm -hmm. sometimes with other people. But uh, yeah, the, the problem here is that you can't be one hundred percent certain, and also some ethical issues uh, that are prevent me from doing this, uh, um, which is which is good, but it's extremely challenging. But also very interesting. What I find interesting is the the whole idea of you know what other methods can we use or what other trends can we see um, to allow us to gather even more information using publicly available sources, and uh, especially about the the terrorism financing aspect that you mentioned, the the trends that we can see with the transparency around ownership is, is very interesting to see. And I would like to um, 
Yeah, I mean, it's always, uh, I always like to hear from other people their opinion. What do you see? Like, what are the new trends mm -hmm. in the world of Austin? Do you see something in particular in the finance world, apart from what you just mentioned? Are there also other trends, like socially? What, what, what would you think? Mm. Yeah, hmm. that's a difficult one. Sort of like, what are the broader social trends? So, hmm. I think right now I would say that that one of the bigger challenges in the counterterrorism space is the sheer number of different kinds of actors. So, you know, we still have our traditional Al Qaeda, Islamic State, Hezbollah, Hamas. All of those actors are still present and still. Um, a challenge. But then there are others, our new, I, I, we call them the ideologically motivated violent extremists. So they could be anti-government extremists. They could be neo-Nazis. They could be, you know, name your sort of weird ideology. They sort of fit in that bucket. Um, I think that the number of different actors, and then they're also their, their crossover is a bit of a challenge right now, because especially from a policy perspective, I would say that it's easier for people who are really steeped in internet culture to understand what's happening. But then when you try to explain it to a policymaker and explain how somebody can have multiple and sometimes competing viewpoints, that becomes a really difficult conversation to have because people are expecting a certain level of coherence or a certain level of <laughs> clarity in terms of ideology that's motivating potentially violent activity. And that's not always there. So that's one of the challenges. Um, but again, in the OSINT space, I think that it's also really interesting to watch anti-government extremists, and, and I sort of use that term broadly, and their adoption of cryptocurrency as part of their ideology. So, you know, a lot of organized terrorist groups have used cryptocurrency because it's expedient. It's been a, a way that they've wanted to do something. But the anti-government extremists are deliberately moving away from government-backed currency and using crypto in that way. So it's a bit of a different spin than we've seen in the past. Well, that's interesting. Um, I mean, when you also talk about broader, like the, the far rights, it has also become like a, a umbrella term that tries to catch all these different um, and complex ideologies. Um, it's also where one of the early adopters, as you also said, based on the ideology that they uh, don't trust the, the system or find it very, very fascinating. Um, you know, what I was also thinking about is um, the, the these complexities um, in terms of the, the technologies that you mentioned earlier as well. So for someone who, because uh, some of our listeners, they are, have been maybe around um, a long time in the OSIN in space, or some of them are quite new and they would like to start or pursue a career in this area. Um, and you also mentioned earlier that the, you know, currently or in the in this field, um, people have to know more about technologies. Is this specific in, for the for the financing uh, for the finance world uh, when it comes to countering um, terrorist finance? Um, you know, I think the knowledge of the technologies is really useful, depend regardless of what sort of aspect of terrorism or extremism you're looking at. So if you are someone who's extracting human intelligence or, or, or that kind of information from um, social media platforms, understanding how the technologies work and the level of verifications involved so that you know who's behind the keyboard is really important. Um, and the same thing applies in the finance space too. So just because my debit card was used um, like my bank card was used at a particular location. Does that mean that I I was the one who used it? 
or could was that transferable to another individual? So these are some of the examples of understanding how the technologies can be used and transferred. You know, somebody could technically be using my Twitter account, right? Since it might not be me. Um, those are all aspects of understanding sort of the, the current technological ecosystem that makes it very useful for intelligence analysts um, to have that level of skepticism and demand that level of verification. Because when you start getting into investigations, you have to be able to prove that it was Jessica Davis who tweeted this thing on the internet, or it was Jessica Davis who sent that Bitcoin transaction. You just because it was my wallet doesn't mean that it was necessarily me who did it. Um, so there's a few things there that I think are, that are, that cross the different um, themes of terrorism research. And is there also something in general that you would recommend someone who wants to pursue a career, you know, at, you know in the government somewhere or just become an OSINT analyst somewhere? Are there any skills that you, where you say also, I mean, considering your very impressive career and your experience in there, um, are there any certain skills or traits that someone should have? Mm, I think that there's two things that are really important for anybody who really wants to work in this field. The first one is to be extremely skeptical of all the information that you see. So that level of verification. So it happens in classified sources and it happens in unclassified and open sources where you get a piece of information that you think this is incredible, this is gonna break the case. And to really be super, super skeptical about where that's coming from, who benefits from you knowing that and whether or not you can independently verify it. So we, and when we talk about investigations, we often think about the idea of independent triangulation. So trying to get at the same information from three very different sources. So thinking through with a very skeptical mind how you can verify that information. And the second piece is unrelenting curiosity. Um, this is very true in financial investigations where you have to go sometimes down long, long rabbit holes before you get to anything remotely resembling a conclusion. You know, if we're talking about nested shell corporations, you're going to have to pull up the corporate information for dozens of companies and you're looking for one or two individuals that they may have in common, six companies down the road. So you have to be super willing to do that long, slow work to get to a good outcome. And it's not for everyone, which is fine. Yeah. <laughs> no, Unrelenting curiosity. <laughs> yeah. Curiosity. Yeah, we so we it's also curious, absolutely agree with the curiosity part, but also the skeptical part is so important because as you said, you can't just take everything for granted, especially in the Ozen space. Um, mm -hmm. So these are really good um, tips. So thank you for sharing this. Um, before we conclude this interview, we've got one final question that we ask everyone, which is, um, you know, what is the next thing that you would like to learn? Because it's all about learning and we all want to learn. So is there anything? And before you, um, I give you just a, a minute uh, to think about this. And in the meantime, again, this is for our listeners on our podcast. Um, make sure to follow uh, Jessica on Twitter. Her handle is at Jess Marin Davis. So that's J-E-S-S-M-A-R-I-N-D-A-V-I-S. And that's her Twitter account. And also make sure to subscribe um, to her newsletter that you can find uh, at, at, uh, so at insightintel.substack.com. Um, and you can also find the link on her Twitter. So just make sure to follow her on Twitter. Then everything is easier. And also get her new book, Illicit Money, Financing Terrorism in the 21st Century, that is available on Amazon. 
Cool. So, Jessica, mm -hmm. uh, what is the next big thing that you want to learn? So the thing that I'm really working on right now is slowly upgrading my knowledge in the financial space. So, you know, it may seem like I'm this expert on all things terrorist financing, and I know a lot about that for sure. But there are so many different ways that illicit financing can happen, how sanctions evasion happens. So there's a couple of different courses that are available. I'm doing one through um, Manchester CF called the Financial Intelligence Specialist. So I'm sort of slowly upgrading those skills. I think one of the ones that I did recently, I did one on cryptocurrency. I learned a couple things because you just, there's, there's always something new to learn in the space. Um, and I'm doing one on correspondent banking, I think is the next one up in the queue. So the certification process and like just continuing to expand my knowledge because you never know when it's going to come in handy. The difficult thing in a lot of the financial stuff is that you sometimes don't know what you don't know, that you may look at some sort of piece of financial information and think, oh, that doesn't look relevant. But until you actually have like the knowledge about what you're looking at, it doesn't become relevant. So that's a bit difficult. The other thing that I'm working on right now is really trying to understand what our counter-terrorist financing policies and practices do. And that's just knowledge acquisition and figuring out, do they do what we think they do? Do they actually reduce levels of terrorism? Um, and that's sort of the PhD piece. PhD. Yeah, that's that's very impressive. Uh, very impressive career and also how you manage your time. It's unbelievable. Uh, yeah, it's incredible. Uh, so thanks again so much for sharing your expertise and your knowledge with us. Um, and also to our listeners, if you like this show, please make sure to subscribe uh, also share our interviews if you like them and also absolutely make sure to follow jessica on uh, on twitter so once again jessica thank you so much for uh, being with me today thank you so much it was a great conversation